Leviticus chapter 14, which is really a part of chapter 13. It has to do with uh, leprosy. That um, the skin can show leprosy and the garments can show leprosy. And tonight, well, maybe tonight, a house can show leprosy. We'll talk about that as we get to it. And we may not get there tonight because there's quite a bit to say about the leper himself. Chapter 13 of Leviticus, and of course we're going to go through uh, chapter 15, I think, is the, and we already started what, back in chapter 11, whatever. All of that has to do with uncleanness and, and cleanliness of the people of the Lord and, and the importance of that in their worship and service to him. And of course he would have had, uh, it would have had uh, overtones to hygiene and other things, the health of the people. Um, but chapter Leviticus 13 is that part which identifies leprosy. We'll call it leprosy. It's the word can mean more, but we'll call it leprosy. Chapter 14 is the cleansing of leprosy. So identification of leprosy in chapter 13, the cleansing of leprosy in chapter 14. Now, none of this is medicinal. It's, it's all ritual. Uh, the important thing in the law is to satisfy Yahweh. So everything here has to do with uh, the ritual uh, activity of the worshiper and uh, the importance of his standing before Yahweh in his worship. So now, Leviticus 14, the cleansing ritual. So we first, the first, I think, 32 verses or so deal with the leper. We'll just start in verse one. What I, what I hope to do is just go all the way through these 32 verses and uh, reflect on some things about uh, the leper. And then, and then, uh, if y'all are still awake and nobody's left yet, we may go through the rest of it, just read it, and then make a reflection on uh, the teaching with regard to houses and leprosy. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the person afflicted with tzara'at, or leprosy. I, okay, leprosy. I have to keep telling myself we're just going to call it that. On the day of his cleansing, he shall be brought to the priest the priest shall go outside the camp and the priest shall look and behold, the lesion of leprosy has healed in the afflicted person. Then the priest shall order and the person to be cleansed shall take two live clean birds, a cedar stick, a strip of crimson wool and hyssop. The priest uh, shall order and one shall slaughter the one bird. Uh, so the two birds, one bird is slaughtered. Uh, the one bird into an earthenware vessel over spring water. As for the live bird, he shall take it and then the cedar stick, the strip of crimson wool and the hyssop. And along with the live bird, he shall dip them into the blood of the slaughtered bird over the spring water. And on the eighth day, he shall take two unblemished male lambs 
one unblemished ewe lamb in its first year, three-tenths of an ephah of flour mixed with olive oil as a meal offering, and one log of olive oil. And the priest who is performing the cleansing shall place the person being cleansed together with these things before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting or at the entrance of the tabernacle. He shall slaughter the lamb in the place where one slaughters the sin offering and the burnt offering in a holy place. For regarding the priest's service, the guilt offering is like the sin offering. It is a holy of holies. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall place it above the cartilage of the right ear of the person being cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it onto the priest's left palm. And the priest shall then dip his right index finger into some of the oil that is on his left palm and sprinkle some of the oil with his index finger seven times before Yahweh. <laughs> and some of the remainder of the oil that is in his palm, the priest shall place on the cartilage of the right ear of the person being cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering. And what is left over from the oil that is in the priest's palm, he shall place it upon the head of the person being cleansed and the priest shall effect atonement for him before Yahweh. The priest shall then perform the service of the sin offering and effect atonement for the person being cleansed of his uncleanness. After this, he shall slaughter the burnt offering. And the priest shall bring up the burnt offering and the meal offering to the altar. The priest shall thus effect atonement for him, and he shall be completely clean. But if he's poor and cannot afford these sacrifices, he shall take one male lamb as a guilt offering for a waving to effect atonement for him, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a meal offering and a log of oil, and two turtle doves or two young doves, according to what he can afford, one shall be a sin offering and one shall be a burnt offering. And he shall bring them on the eighth day of his cleansing to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle before Yahweh. And the priest shall take the guilt offering and the log of oil and the priest shall wave them as a waving or a wave offering before Yahweh. And he shall slaughter the guilt offering lamb and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offerings and place it blood and place it on the cartilage of the right ear of the person being cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall then pour some of the oil into the left palm of the priest. The priest shall sprinkle with his right index finger some of the oil that is in his left palm seven times before Yahweh. And the priest shall place some of the oil that is in his palm on the cartilage of the right ear of the person being cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on the place of the blood of the guilt offering. And what is left over from the oil that is in the priest's palm, he shall place it upon the head of the person being cleansed to effect atonement for him before Yahweh. He shall then perform the service, uh, one of the turtle doves 
or of the young doves from whatever he can afford. From what he can afford, one is a sin offering and one is a burnt offering besides the meal offering. And the priest shall effect atonement for the person being cleansed before Yahweh. This is the law of one in whom there is a lesion of leprosy who cannot afford the full array of services when he is to be cleansed. Okay. Boy, if you were a priest, you had to know a lot of stuff, didn't you? Um, most of the symbolism seems to be obvious. The ceremony with the birds, for example, uh, presupposes an, an identification of the person, the worshiper, the one who's being cleansed with the birds. We've already seen this principle of identification of the worshiper with the sacrificial animal in the offerings when we studied those in early Leviticus. The bird that dies uh, pictures, portrays vicariously what would have happened to the person if God had not intervened. Now the bird that flies away may be symbolic of the new life that is now given to the cleansed or cured person, formerly a leper. It also could convey the picture of the skin disease that has been carried away by the bird. Whatever it reminds us of the, uh, of the scapegoat, and we'll, talk, we'll get to him sometime here in Leviticus, that that which is troublesome and taints and separates and destroys is taken away. It's sent away. It is, it is by the power and the grace of God. Now the use of cedar wood and scarlet, uh, scarlet yarn really, and hyssop, that's not uncommon in the purification rites uh, and it's indicated in other places such as in Numbers 16, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers 19 and the 51st Psalm and uh, it's seen again and talked about in Hebrews chapter nine. Cedar was a precious wood regarded as the strongest and best in the time of Israel in their part of the world. So it needed to be something strong and good. The scarlet thread, of course, was used prolifically in the, in the tabernacle itself. And we can reflect on the words of Isaiah about its meaning when he says in Isaiah 1, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Hyssop was a small bushy herb that had, uh, it was very common in Egypt and in Palestine. It had thick, hairy uh, leaves on it and the branches would be made into bunches to hold liquids for sprinkling, almost like a paintbrush. And it was a, a bunch of hyssop that was used for the sprinkling of the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts on the eve of their deliverance from Egypt. That's back over in Exodus chapter 12. Now, all three of these items were used in the sprinkling of the blood on the healed person. 
This was real ritualistic. This was special. It was the it was uh, it was the order of Yahweh. And it was thus to declare the person to be healed. Now, then there were these offerings that were offered. The presentation of the last three offerings here is consistent with what we learned about the basic meaning of the offerings back in the first five chapters of Leviticus. The meal offering or the grain offering was a pledge of renewed commitment and dedication to God. Fellowship, if you will. Now restored and so an acknowledgement by the worshiper being cleansed, fully restored, fully renewed, and now a completely renewed commitment and dedication to Yahweh, service to him. The sin offering was to cleanse the sanctuary of any uncleanness that the disease may have caused. The burnt offering was essential to the person's reconciliation and rededication to God. This was his, uh, uh, this was his offering of uh, offering himself as a sacrifice essentially before the Lord that, that he, he was dedicated for the, for, to Yahweh and would work and for and serve Yahweh uh, from then on. That was the burnt offering. And it had to come after the other ones, of course, sin and guilt, those things had to be dealt with first. Now, when, when, I, when I read this of, of particular interest here in this cleansing ritual is the use of some of the blood of the trespass offering that was to be put on the tip of the right ear of the person being cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So after that then follows the ritual in which some of the oil is poured into the palm of the left hand of the priest so that with his right finger he can then sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times, which is the number of completion. Do that before Yahweh. So in other words, this is an absolute and complete service before Yahweh. Then he's to repeat with the oil what he had done with the blood on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. The ritual concludes when the priest pours the remaining oil out of his left hand and onto the head of the one who is being cleansed. Okay. The anointing with the blood and the oil on the ear, the thumb, the big toe reminds us of the same ritual, the same anointing of Aaron and his sons back in Leviticus 8 when they were ordained to the priesthood. That was to teach them that the priests, that, that uh, they were being ordained to a ministry in which their ears, their hands, and their feet were consecrated to service, to hearing, to serving, and to walking with Yahweh and to walk and serve before Yahweh in his presence. So this person brought back from outside the camp into fellowship again with the people of God is now dedicated once again to hearing and serving and walking with Yahweh and in joining that service 
with Yahweh's other people. So think about what it must have felt like to watch a lesion growing on your skin. You would experience the dread and the helplessness as the symptoms would persist. One would feel total despair as the priest diagnoses the condition and declares the person to be unclean. You have to say goodbye to everybody. You have to assume for the last time ever that you're saying goodbye for your family for the last time maybe, your friends, your loved ones. And for now you have to live outside the camp, cut off from all but the others like you uh, and be removed from the normal aspects of daily living. Literally, symbolically, becoming God-forsaken. So from now on, you'd wake every morning with no reason to get up, nothing to do, not being needed by anyone, not being cared for by anyone, because your condition has separated you. And then beyond your wildest dreams and imaginations and hopes, healing comes and the disease is arrested. Now there's nothing in this portion that talks about was there some kind of thing people did to heal it? No. It had to be divine intervention. So they would then experience the joy of returning to the camp. The disease not only stopped, but reversed and healing sets in. And now you would be restored to all of the rights and privileges of being a human again, of being part of your people again, to rejoin your family and friends. And now also to be restored to the high privilege of worshiping Yahweh again in the tabernacle. So such a person is renewed and restored. And I'll just bet that there was a great celebration whenever someone who was restored and cleansed came back. Remember, everything, is, everything in the Bible in the Old Testament is carrying us to Jesus. And we learn in the Bible that leprosy is a type of sin. It is something that you didn't ask for, but it happens. And it consumes and it disfigures and finally kills after it's separated uh, the sufferer from everything lost everything. And that's why it's so special in the New Testament to watch those miracles when Jesus would cleanse the leper. This is something that had to be God, the hand of God that would do. And how, how privileged the worshiper, the, one, the, the former leper, the one who had been cleansed, 
would feel to be able just to go back to normal life again and now treasure that life more than it was treasured before, I'm sure. Taking things for granted in the community of the believers and the worshipers, but then sin separates and destroys. And then there's the restoration of the kind hand of God and the grace of the Savior and the great feeling of restoration uh, and, and a renewed commitment that, that brings a worshiper surely, in a sense, closer to God than ever before. Those are some of the things that we take away from, uh, from the leper, but let's consider the house. Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, when you come to the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you as a possession, and I place a lesion of uh, leprosy upon a house in the land of your possession, and the one to whom the house belongs comes and tells the priest saying, something like a lesion has appeared to me in the house. The priest shall order that they clear out the house, clear out, get out of the house, clear it out, and before the priest comes to look at it, so that everything in the house should not become unclean. And after this, the priest shall come to look at the house. Now, back up. Now, in my Hebrew Bible, this is verse 34. I'm assuming it's yours when it, where it says, when you come to the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you. Is that verse 34 to y'all? Okay. All right. Good. All right. Verse 34. This is a law regarding something they don't have yet. Ba'arbet. A house. They're living in tents. They're traveling. They're not in the land of Canaan yet. So this is something that Yahweh gives to them when the time comes that they will possess the land. Now look at the confidence Yahweh has. When you come to the land of Canaan, not if you come, but when you come, and then which I am giving you as a possession. It's not that I might give it to you if you get there, You'll get there and I'll give it to you. This is, a, this is the promise that Yahweh made way back. Uh, the covenant that he made with Abraham about is that included that part of the land, the covenant regarding the land. It's, it's always their land. Now sin can remove them from that land, but after a period of time, God who is almighty promises to restore them to that land because it's their land. And God doesn't back up on that promise. He does punish them for sin. And he warns them of that in Deuteronomy. But they come back. So it's something that's a done deal in the heart of God. This is your possession. This is your land. And you will have houses in that land. And I place a lesion. Now look at that. I place a lesion of, tzara, well, of leprosy upon a house in the land of your possession and the, the one who lives there recognizes it, comes to the priest about it. The priest says, get out of there, get everything out of there so that it doesn't spread any further and let me come and look at it. He shall look at the lesion. Now, if the lesion in the walls of the house consists of dark green or red sunken looking stains appearing as if deeper than the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the entrance of the house. He shall quarantine the house for seven days. 
Then the priest shall return on the seventh day and look at the house. Now, if the lesion has spread in the walls of the house, the priest shall order that they remove the stones upon which the lesion is found. And they shall cast them away outside of the city to an unclean place. And he shall scrape out the house from the inside all around and they shall pour out the, the, mortar, the mortar dust from what they scraped outside the city into an unclean place. They shall take other stones and bring them instead of those stones. And he shall take other mortar dust and plaster in the house. And if the lesion returns and erupts in the house after he had removed the stones and after the house had been scraped around and after it had been plastered, then the priest shall come and look at it. Now, if the lesion in the house has spread, it is malignant. It is malignant leprosy in the house and it is unclean. He shall demolish the house, its stones, its wood, and all of the mortar dust of the house. And he shall take them outside the city uh, to an unclean place. And anyone entering the house during all the days of its quarantine shall become unclean until the evening. Whoever lies down in the house shall immerse his garments and whoever eats in the house shall immerse his garments. But if the priest, but if the priest comes and comes again and looks at the lesion and behold, the lesion did not spread in the house after the house has been plastered, the priest, priest shall pronounce the house clean because the lesion has healed. To ritually cleanse the house, he shall take two birds, a cedar stick, a strip of crimson wool, and hyssop. He shall slaughter one bird onto an earthenware vessel over spring water. He shall take the cedar stick, the hyssop, the strip of crimson wool, the live bird. He shall dip them into the blood of the slaughtered bird and into the spring water and sprinkle towards the house seven times. And he shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird the spring water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the strip of crimson wool. He shall then send away the live bird outside the city onto the open field, and he shall thus effect atonement for the house, and it'll be clean. All this is the law for every lesion of, of uh, Tzarat and for the Netech, and for the Tzarat of garments, the, the leprosy of garments and houses, and for the se'et, and for the sepachat, and for the ba'aret. To render decisions regarding the day of uncleanness and, and the day of uncleanness. This is the law of tzara'at, or, or leprosy. Okay, now let's briefly look back on this. Just like garments or clothing, houses can become involved in decay through mold and mildew, dry rot, other things. Uh, indeed, uh, certain kinds of mold in a house can be unhealthy for people. I know a person who did not know it, but he slept in a, a room that uh, was close to a lot of black mold that was growing and nobody knew that it was there. It was covered up until finally it was discovered. And he came down with a very, a very serious illness 
that infected his sinus cavities and all up in his face. Uh, and he swelled up, he looked like a clown. And he was put into Birmingham Hospital. It took several days for them to overcome in his body what he had, what he had taken into his body from that, that mold. So these things can happen uh, in a house left unattended. It can, these things can destroy a house, of course. Uh, mold, mildew, dry rot. So not only were people to be clean personally and were they, to, were they to be dignified and acceptable in the garments that they wore, but they also had to take care of their houses. And this, of course, was for their good. Now, this is when they get to Canaan. Now, notice that, as I said, the passage looks ahead to when they, when they build their houses in, in Canaan. And it talks about stone houses here that are built in cities. Before they arrived in Canaan, after the conquests of uh, Joshua, they lived in tents and encampments. And the provisions of that we've seen, uh, that we have seen in, in chapters 13 and 14 are um, applicable to life in the desert camp. But here the principles by which they dealt with uncleanness in garments and tents are applied at a later time to their houses, which the houses would also affect the cities. Now these were the people of God. Separation, sanctification, cleanness, to recognize the importance of, of cleanness, to be, to be everything that, was, that they could possibly be as a worshiper of, of Yahweh. The point is that God's people are different from the world. We've seen that God gave them a different diet. Most of what they were told they couldn't eat was indigenous to the land where they were and was freely eaten by all of the other nations around them, but they couldn't do it because they were God's people. God had his own reasons, but they were separated from the rest of the world because they were God's people. So attention to their skin, attention to their garments, attention to their houses later on and attention later on to their cities are very important because they are God's people. And they had to attend to these things meticulously uh, all, all of the time. So these were principles of cleanness and uncleanness. And they dealt with these in garments, uh, in their tents, but later applied them when they were living in the houses and the cities. Now an interesting aspect here of the diagnostic process that's described is that which allows them to remove everything from the house before the priest comes and makes his diagnosis and decides whether or not the house has leprosy. By allowing this, the occupants were permitted to escape total economic disaster because if the house was declared unclean and that stuff was still in the house, then everything in the house would be declared unclean. That would not be very pleasant. You'd have to start all over again, so to speak. So though it's a, though it's a, a technical matter, 
it's still a gracious privilege that was extended to the owner of the house at a later time that, that their, their stuff could be preserved. And the older you get, the more stuff you have. And the more important it is. The process of diagnosis here is the same as it was with people and garments. It included a seven-day uh, seven waiting period before the final decision was made by the priest. So every effort is made to save the house, starting with the removal of the portion of the structure that was affected by the fungus or the mold or whatever, and the replacement of that part which was diseased with new stones and new mortar and new plaster. Now, if the renovation fails to cure the malady, then the last resort was to demolish the entire structure. And there would be a careful disposal of all of that stuff outside the city to an area that had been deemed an area for unclean things. If the renovation was successful, then the same kind of cleansing ceremony as the initial ceremony for uh, the cured leper outside the camp would be performed by the priest. Happy time. The house would be declared clean and could be lived in again. No sacrifices were required for the cleansing of the house because the houses were inanimate things. They were not people. They, they did not relate to God, nor did they relate to the tabernacle. But this was a gracious, this was a gracious provision by Yahweh so that everything about their lives could be attended to and on a daily basis, whether you're at home or whether you're out walking around or whatever, with your clothes on or in your house, you were constantly reminded by your, by your body, your garments, your home, your city, that you were separated to the Lord and that purification was important. And to be clean as the Lord defined cleanness was of utmost importance because if it was disregarded, then that person was outside the camp and they didn't have any, they didn't have any exchange with anybody except maybe those others who were outside the camp with them, which in the New Testament we know they become colonies of, of lepers. But in the whole thing, the reminder is given to us of what our special privilege is before the Lord and how gracious he is to cleanse us from that which separates, from that which defiles, from that which ultimately uh, destroys. And it keeps us out of worship. It keeps us away from the people of God. And according, according to what we read here, those things are the priorities of life for God's people. So, we're God's people and we follow God's word. We, we're, we seek to be obedient to God's word and God cares for us.
uh, as, as our true and living God. We're going to stop there and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for how you graciously care for us. You look upon us and you, you even regard the clothes that we wear, the, the, the flesh that we have, the houses where we live and the, the cities where our houses are. And we know that all of this is taken up into the great work of Christ who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and sin. We thank you for your word and how it teaches us and how it ever points us on every page and in every word to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.